Today's episode is equal parts sublime, iconoclastic, and full of movement. My name's Allison Brown, and I'm gonna be your digital docent. So great to see you again. I hope you've had a lovely week. Everyone at the gallery has been pretty delighted personally. We haven't had this many visits in a while. It helps that we've been having a lot of new doors open up as well. Just within the Great Hall, we've had Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Spotify open up, which is just delightful. Of course, our partner Anchor is working really hard on getting doors open at Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Overcast, and TuneIn right now as well. It's been so lovely to hear that folks have been wanting to come in through those avenues, so knock on wood, we'll be there very soon. Doors can be built in a day, and in the case of some gateways, such as Apple, they're getting so much demand for connections that it just takes a little while. They did always say that patience was a virtue, or something. I mean, I'm in the observing dried pain business here, so your mileage may vary. Anyway, for today's tour, we're dipping into a part of art history that I'm admittedly not the most familiar with. Romanticism was something that didn't really capture my imagination when I was in art school, but after learning about our artists today, I'm finding out that that's more than a little bit of a pity. Besides, that's the awesome thing about being a docent. We get to learn with our audience and are able to dig into things that we might have missed at the first glance. And as it turns out, there's a lot more to romanticism than a bunch of suited men with gigantic mutton chops staring out morosely at the world at large. Although, don't get it twisted, there's there's a lot of that in romanticism. And brooding, and looming clouds over the horizon grumbling threateningly. Definitely lots of that. Anyway, a lot of the reason why romanticism was so arresting to the world at large in the Victorian era is that it has a lot to do with the Georgian slash Napoleonic era specifically before it. The Age of Enlightenment brought a lot to Western society. A lot of the ideas that germinated the quote unquote modern world were specifically seeded in that time. I mean, the Enlightenment gave us the wealth of nations, a spate of revolutions across the Americas as well as in France, and the Industrial Revolution, and that's just really the tip of the iceberg. But when you look to the cruelty of Robespierre's First French Republic, or the Roman Stoicism that ruled most of the continent as well as the British Empire, to even how machines were transforming the literal and figurative landscape of Western civilization, well, you can see why the zeitgeist might have craved a little bit of sentimentality. More to the point, we have to remember how the Industrial Revolution was cranking away at whittling that very nature that romantics were so obsessed with on a spiritual and visual level. While humans are figuring out how to blast through mountains in Sidonia to get shale, and Americans are blasting through a manifest destiny that they purchased from the French, they're also mesmerized by how nature fought back at such violence. A lot of the crux of romantic painting sits in the sublime, which is an intangible emotion that I often find best described as the knife blade between arousal and terror. You both fear and love her. 
if you want to translate it into internet terms, I kind of feel like the sublime is the equivalent of seeing a beautiful woman tweet on Twitter and replying with, you could murder me and I would thank you. Now, that analogy is imperfect, of course. Academically speaking, we're more prone to quote the philosopher Denis Diderot, who's quoted as defining the sublime as all that stuns the soul, all that imprints a feeling of terror, leads to the sublime. Now, kudos go to Catherine Kelly Gallitz of the Met for sourcing that quote in her lovely romanticism essay, which will be included in the show notes. Diderot is thinking about that moment when you're staring into the Grand Canyon and your stomach falls out. That kind of thing. That right there is the sublime. And I imagine that the Victorian soul encountered the sublime a great deal when they were encountering the world around them. I mean, their entire environment was shifting before their very eyes, often within weeks. And to process that is breathtaking and scary. No wonder one of the most famous paintings of the period is a man in a dark suit staring out at a misty culvert. Now, if you can keep all of that above in mind as we encounter our work this week, as well as the artists who made it, I think it'll make the painting that we see a lot more breathtaking than maybe you would originally believe it to be. I mean, unless you're keen on pastoral animal scenes. I mean, I don't want to speak for you after all. Anyway, without further ado, here's today's painting. Highland Raid by Rosa Bonor. Now, this week's painting is a bit larger than the last one, which seems to go with the theme of the Romantic era. Highland Raid is 84 inches by 51 without the frame, or 213.36 centimeters by 129.54 for a metric friends. We're dealing with another horizontal painting yet again, which is putting the land and landscape in a pun that was inescapable given both who is hosting this podcast as well as the subject matter at hand. If our last painting was roughly the size of a small television, this one's meant to make you feel a little more dwarfed. It's closer to the size of a twin bed than not, and that might help you paint the proverbial picture a little bit better. Now, if smaller paintings help you appreciate the delicacy of a painter's brush marks, one of my favorite things about more monumental paintings is that they help you appreciate the breadth and depth of brushworks that artists place on canvases. A great deal of Rosa's genius is portrayed in the contrast of textures that are placed on her canvases. The clouds in the background, for instance, are conveyed with a far more open brush stroke than the endearing delicacy that marks the outlines of curls in every Highland steer and shaggy sheep in her herd. Now, that's one of the amazing things about paintings just in general. Depending on the distance that you are from them, there are different things to appreciate and enjoy. Of course, in just talking about scale, we're not talking about the real star of the show, which is the composition itself. Here, Rosa has depicted one of her favorite scenes in the history of ever, a bunch of herders migrating their livestock from point A to point B. Now, I'm not saying this to diminish the nature of the work or anything. I'm just saying Rosa Bonnor has made a lot of paintings following this formula. Highland Raid isn't even one of her most popular works that's based off of this particular formula. Arguably, her capstone work is the Horse Fair, which was so beloved in its time that Queen Victoria was said to be such a huge fan that she gushed to Rosa about it when they first met. So it's really clear to see why this is Rosa's niche when you look at the painting. Each cow within the herd has a spark in its eye and clear motivation in its step as they thunder across the rolling moors of the highlands. 
One of my favorites is a strawberry blonde steer that has a hoof up midair as it looks stage left, possibly assessing the route next taken as it possibly eyes its caretaker who is trundling by in the distance. Now, there isn't a lot of light in the picture. It's the highlands after all, but what is there filters through the moody clouds above and alights this steer's curls in such a way that its fur sparkles with a certain amount of luminescence that you're not expecting from an extremely exhausted, filthy, and cranky cow. Now, this glow extends to the herd and the immediate vicinity of the steer, including one particular pitch black one whose nose has just enough light glittering off of it that you can just tell how wet its little snoot is. Even the sheep's mucky curls pick up some light from the shafts of sunlight pouring down on the moor below. Now, it's clear that these cattle are traveling through some of the most mountainous and remote terrain in the British Isles. To the lower left, signs of a loch are glimmering while the great mountains of the highlands lurk in the back. There's patches of snow that are gracing the peaks of the range that comprise it in the background, and they're most likely courtesy of the rolling clouds that are depicted above the animals' heads. It's very clear that Rosa made sure that the nature was the star of the show, as the Scottish herders are kind of nothing but murky shadows amongst their expressive wards. There's the main herder to stage left that we mentioned, as well as a few to the top right that are but mere whispers as they guide the straggling cows over the main hill. From their silhouettes, you can tell that they're wearing kilts and tams as they roam the moors, a significantly sentimental affectation given that it took Queen Victoria and Albert's love affair with the Highlands to even allow this costume to gain favor after the clearances, but such was the style. Besides, compared to the steers and sheep, the herders are mere touches to set the staging. They're not really the main event at all. Now, in retrospect, it's even amazing that we have this painting, period. Rosa Bonor was another artistic genius who just happened to be in the right place and with the right people at what is otherwise a completely wrong time for women in art. Rosa was the eldest of four children in the Bonor family, all of who became famous artists in their own right as they grew up under the tutelage of their father. Oscar Raymond Bonor was, by Victorian standards, a real weird dude in the sense that he was for complete equality of the sexes as early as the 1820s, which was around when Rosa was born. He raised all of his children with the exact same access to education regardless of their sex, which is precisely why Rosa was able to start off her completely unconventional life as if it was the usual from day one. Rosa was born rowdy and bold and was the natural leader of her family. Often, when you read writings about how Rosa described herself in those earliest years, she would use words like boyish or masculine bent, and these would generally pepper the how she would frame that understanding of self. One of the most famous things noted about Rosa is that once her career was in full swing, the French police gave her a special dispension to wear pants and smocks to observe an animal anatomy in the wild. This, you will realize, is a bit of a theme in Rosa's life. I'm just here to tell you that it started early. Her father ended up opening the first and, at the time, only drawing school for girls within France, which became an institution that most of the Bonnors' lives revolved around in addition to their artistic careers. It feels perverse to not mention Rosa's mother in all of this while Rosa's entire life is full of feminine empowerment, and her mother Sophie was involved in her intellectual education given her tutoring background. But Sophie sadly passed away when Rosa was 10, courtesy of everyone's favorite pooping disease, 
cholera. Just think, Rosa could have had a mom if Paris had working sewers at the time. But this meant that Rosa briefly had an encounter with a boarding school, which ended hilariously badly. Rosa specifically wrote that her tomboy manners had an unfortunate influence upon my companions who soon grew turbulent and that she was sent back home in disgrace, which is very St. Trinian's of her. Once returned, Oscar Raymond was like, well, might as well train the girl myself. And it's a good thing too. Around this time, he had ended up reading some animal-friendly philosophy, and this combined with the general observation of Rose's talents really dovetailed nicely together to highlight her genius at rendering the natural world. By 13, Rosa was off to the races, studying under her father to begin her career as one of the best pastoral painters of her time. This education meant going to the Louvre to study and copy classical works, as well as renting out an apartment to house an entire menagerie of animals for her to study. This was around the time when Rosa began to traipse around horse sales and slaughterhouses to study human anatomy, physiology, and their emotions. Something that's completely wild when you consider what walking around as a young woman in the 1840s was even like. No wonder they had to give her a dispension for pants. Mutton sleeves and hoop skirts have no use in the messy wilds of study in the field. By her early 20s, Rosa submitted both painting and sculptural works to the salon, but she eventually chose painting so that her brother Isidore could actually have the spotlight on sculpture. As someone who has always been on the struggle bus when it comes to making works that live in three-dimensional space, the fact that she was able to just choose to drop one speaks to how insanely talented she was as an artist. It's also around this time where Rosa is commissioned to paint a portrait of one Natalie Mikas, who is at the time sickly and her family wanted to memorialize her just in case. Historical accounts state that Rosa was immediately taken by Natalie and eventually became quite close with her family. Natalie ends up being one of Rosa's lifelong companions. Rosa even uses the phrase spiritually married to describe their relationship, and Natalie takes care of the householding while Rosa continued to submit to the salon, be commissioned by European heads of state, teach students, and generally defied gender norms up until Natalie passed away in the late 1880s. Now, this is one of those situations where historians are pretty coy, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Come on spiritually married and yet most of history depicts you as a spinster okay uh-huh yeah right i'm sure that's exactly what was going on but i digress let's get back to the career since we left her off in her early period now, while she ends up taking her father's place as headmistress of his drawing school once he passed the 1850s are when rose's career just explodes she submits the Horse Fair in 1853 after laboring over it for two years, and it's arguably one of those works that completely transforms her career and makes her entire body of work something that's memorialized in the Western canon. This work in particular brought her into the interest and sphere of Queen Victoria, to the point where Victoria offered her an audience with the British Salon and they allowed her to exhibit her work. This particular British trip is where Rosa encounters the Scottish Highlands for the first time, and she becomes subsequently mesmerized, as most people are at this point in British history. It's fashionable of Scotland and its mysterious moors now, courtesy of the royal family's summer visits up to the Highlands to forget what it's like to be mere royalty every so often. After Victoria and Albert went gaga over it, so did everyone else, and Rosa was no different. 
Now, part of the reason why this was even possible is courtesy of the clearances, which is one of the most bitter experiences in Scottish history. Most of us are familiar with the first part of the clearances, courtesy of Braveheart, Culloden and its bloodbath, etc, etc. But there's a second half to the clearances that end up transforming even more so how the Highlands even appeared to the Victorians. And this is when the English took ownership upon thousands of acres of work presently being farmed by local Scots. The founding of the crofting system and its subsequent surf-like conditions were only the start of a brutal crash of lifestyle that included the nosedive of beef prices and the potato famine that was made so famous by the mass exodus of the Irish. The Scots left true in droves, completely transforming the landscape of the Highlands as it is now. In many ways, Highland Raid is only a dream that Rosa was able to make up in 1860, which is this middle time between when the potato famine completely decimated the crofting system and when the Crofters Holding Act of 1886 was passed in London that ensured the three Fs. Fair rent, free sale of property, and fixity of tenure to those who farmed on their historic lands. Now, this is part of the reason why romanticism is a sticky part of our history. It's designed specifically to paint a world that is far more beautiful, mystifying, and even terrifying than it actually is. On one hand, Rose is a complete iconoclast of her time, stomping through the world without giving three shits about what is supposedly required of her from her gender. On the other, it's pretty clear that her upbringing, her later international fame and fortune gave her a privilege that meant that she was able to fetishize the rural working class in favor of mythologizing the animals that they often protected, or tried to, before the combination of nature and Victorian progress completely took that away from them. As is the case with most humans, Rose is a complicated badass. And the fact that I hadn't really heard of her until I started my research for the season is a damn pity. I really hope that it isn't the same for you, but if it is, it's pretty awesome that we were able to learn about her together. Now, if you have any questions at all after this tour, you know the drill. Feel free to email me or reach out on social media. Our email is your.digital.docent at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at yourdigitaldocent. I think I mentioned Facebook last week, but my non-docent duties means that my schedule's been a bit wonky. So it's coming, I promise. A few of you have also asked which podcast distributors will be featured on, so if you have any that aren't covered by the Anchor-related outlets, just send me a line and I'll get them submitted ASAP. Additionally, if you have any questions about when certain outlets are going to become available, just keep an eye on Instagram or Twitter. I'll either tweet about it or snap about it in my Instagram stories. I'd also like to specifically thank DJ Quads for the usage of their song, It Just Makes Me Happy. Check them out on SoundCloud by searching for aka DJ Quads. My eternal gratitude also goes to my research sources this week, which are from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, theartstory.org, Google Arts and Culture, and Hyperallergic. Check them out in the show notes. I really feel like they'll give you a little pep in your step this week. Finally, thanks for coming again. I'll be here in the lobby next week. So maybe bring a friend. I can't wait to chat.